Welcome on this warm spring day uh, to Renovation Church. I'm excited you guys are here. Uh, if I do not know you, I would like to meet you before you leave. Uh, my name is Pastor Rusty. I am not your typical preacher, well, the typical preacher here, rather. Uh, that would be Pastor Matt. Um, but it is my privilege today to bring the word to you from First Peter. We are on our th third week, I think. It's hard to keep track of with those two weeks that we were out. I think this is our third week of First Peter. Um, and I, for one, am extremely enjoying this, this book. Um, First Peter has been close to my heart for some time, but uh, hearing it preached in this manner is, is just very, very helpful and timely, I think, uh, as well. So if you have your Bibles, uh, and I hope that you do, please turn to First Peter chapter 1. We're going to pick up a, a, a little bit where we uh, ended last week is um, the nature of the way that we work through books. You have, to, you have to keep a string going all the way through the book. And as we were encouraged last week, if, if we can keep that foundation that we've received, particularly over the first nine verses and into this next section, then we'll be well grounded for moving through the rest of this book. And so we want to pick up with this transitional thought that we have starting in verse 8. It says, Though you have not seen Him, you love Him. And though you do not now see Him, you believe in Him and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory, obtaining the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls. And concerning this salvation, the prophets who prophesied about the grace that was to be yours searched and inquired carefully, inquiring what person or time the Spirit of Christ in them was indicating when he predicted the sufferings of Christ and the subsequent glories. It was revealed to them that they were serving not themselves, but you, and the things that have now been announced to you through those who preached the good news to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven, things into which angels long to look. Therefore, preparing your minds for action and being sober-minded, set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. As obedient children, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance, but as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct. Since it is written, you shall be holy, for I am holy. And if you call on him as father who judges impartially according to each one's deeds, conduct yourselves with fear, with, with fear throughout the time of your exile. And we could go on in that statement as it just continues an argument, but is really another theme picking up that we'll, we'll deal with next week, uh, but we can set up uh, for it this week. Let's pray together, and then uh, we'll dig into this. Father, we thank you so much for your revealed word. As we're going to discover today, the intentionality with which you revealed yourself, the manner in which you did it, and Father, the target of who you are aiming for, and your revelation of yourself and your son, Father, we are thankful for that. Father, as we look today, we pray that you would warm our hearts, that we would warm our hearts to your word, Father, that we would see and savor that word, and Father, that we would begin to behold really and truly this wonderful mystery of grace that angels long to gaze upon. Father, we love you. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen. See. When we are looking at a, a book like this, it's, it's so important that we, we pick up on the themes that are there. We pick up on the target audience, that we pick up on what they're trying to 
talk about. And as we've seen very clearly thus far, it's clearly about suffering. It's clearly about suffering. And suffering is such a uh, common thing to the human condition that it's something that we almost just take for granted in many cases. Um, And it's something that we uh, take and cling to in many other cases. I mean, we're dealing with suffering in life. It always makes us ask questions, questions that we talked about even last week, such as, is God good? We end up questioning the goodness of God and suffering, not understanding why these things are coming to pass and what we are dealing with. But we ask these kinds of questions, these interpretive questions. I mean, our parenting classes in particular, we talk about how we are all interpreters, and particularly our kids are always interpreting. We are always interpreting everything that's going on around us. And we ask these kinds of questions, these hermeneutic interpretive questions. It's very human to do. We want to know, we want to understand his capacity to ask questions, a a desire to know, a desire to have some kind of inward security. If we can wrap our minds around it, then we can make it okay. Trying to make sense out of our lives. But we're never going to escape asking those questions because it's a part of who we are as a creature, particularly because we are made in God's image. And so the way, though, that you answer those questions, not just ask them, really does shape the way that you respond to life. And shaping the way that you respond to life does really set the direction of your life. But one of the problems in us asking these questions all the time is that it's so natural and so spontaneous and so much a part of who we are as human beings that we can have this function of asking questions going on all the time. Profoundly important as it is, we don't realize that we're doing it. We're asking questions. We're interpreting. We're trying to understand what's going on. And so what happens is we turn into many philosophers. We're many theologians. We're uh, investigative reporters taking these facts and trying to figure out what it means and what's going on as we interpret or apply a hermeneutic to it. And the thing is, is that our conclusions that we come to are so much more uh, influential than we realize. So much more influential than we realize. We're going to take those answers and we're going to assume the truth about it because that's the conclusion that we landed on. And then we're going to act on that. And the way that we act on those conclusions sets the direction for our life. But fortunately, that is one of the chief purposes for the Word of God that you would have a basis given to you by the God who created it all, who knows everything from origin to destiny. You'd have a basis for generating valid, right interpretations of life, interpretations upon which you can build, you can stake your life on. And so uh, we have to open with the question of how are you doing? (laughs) How are you doing at this? What were the interpretations you made this week? Are you aware of them? Are you aware of what you were saying to you about you, about life, about God, about grace, and about our world? Are you aware that you are making these interpretations? And if we're not aware of them, how do we reconcile them? And these big hermeneutic moments come in all of our lives. And we have to ask the questions, what do they mean? And did I have a right conclusion? So the first thing I want you to do 
today is to see and savor the revealed and risen Christ. See and savor the revealed and risen Christ. Our text tells us that this salvation that is the outcome of our faith that we talked about last week. Everything that our soul desires and wants is this salvation of our souls. That is what we desire most, and we get that in Christ. We get that. And so concerning that salvation, the prophets who prophesied about the grace that was to be yours searched and inquired carefully. They, they were diligently searching or seeking for something. When I was a kid, I used to always tell my dad, I can't find it. I looked. And my dad would send me back with one word, search. <laughs> but I looked, search. And it happened all the time. I would come back and I said, Dad, I, I searched. He said, go look. <laughs> right? That's, that, that's the idea of not just glancing, but investigating and inquiring. You're searching through something like a house, a tent, a city, or a country in order to find some person or something. You're looking as if your life depends on it. And for them, it did. They looked hard, inquiring what person or time the Spirit of Christ in them was indicating. It says the Spirit of Christ in them. I mean, here's what he's saying, right? The prophets of the Old Testament as they very accurately and with specificity predicted exactly how God would provide the salvation that you and I so desperately needed, those prophets, listen, were guided by none other than Christ Himself. That's what Peter's telling us here. It was the Spirit of Christ who was guiding those prophets to make those predictions. Jesus didn't do what He had, or what He did rather, to fulfill the prophecy the prophets prophesied what they did because the Christ who would do it told them what he was going to do. It wasn't as if Jesus had homework that the prophets gave him and he needed to make sure that he kept all of his homework. He wasn't going through and making lists, fulfilled that one, fulfilled that one, fulfilled that one. He's not on the Christ going, guys, don't break my legs. Don't break my legs, that'll, that'll mess up my homework. That's not what's going on. It was Jesus who was in charge of the whole plan from the beginning. I think about that. This almighty Son of God, Lord of lords, King of kings, was now speaking to these men about the kinds of things that He was willing to suffer for you and for me. How amazing is that? Hundreds and hundreds of years before, God was in charge of this process and those things that would be done, not because the prophets predicted them, but because Christ had decided that this is what He was going to do for you and for me. Your salvation doesn't go back to just the cross. It goes far beyond the cross into a plan of a sovereign God who had decided to deal with this horrible dilemma of sin. And He would not be defeated. It's absolutely amazing. You see, what Peter's trying to do is give us a picture of this day when we all stand before the canvas of the glory of God's grace. People of every period of history, every ethnic group, every language group, every point in the globe, men, women, boys, and girls. And when we see the full glory of the grace of God, we won't be able to do anything but worship. At that point, we will be right interpreters. <laughs> We will see and we will worship. Our worship will be so exuberant. It will be like cracks of loud 
thunder like a mighty rushing rapids, like standing next to Niagara. You can't even hear yourself think. We won't be able to do anything but worship. And Peter wants us to taste a little bit of that today. So I would ask you, are you a celebrant of the grace that you have been given? Are you a celebrant of the grace that you have been given? This grace that we have received is worth seeing and savoring. Why? The thing is, is it was Jesus who orchestrates it, but why is it so precious, so valuable? I think we gain a good picture of it when we look at the reactions of, of two parties. One, the prophets that we've already seen a little bit of, and then two, the angels. And so Peter's saying then that the Old Testament prophets eagerly searched and investigated their own prophecies, other scripture, and their own times in order to find out who or what time the Spirit of Christ was indicating when He, the Spirit in them, was predicting these sufferings of Christ and the glories of His kingdom. It would be confusing to them, right? What's the Messiah supposed to be? Deliverer. And particularly when most of the prophets are here, what's going on? Exile. And so then they're prophesying about this Messiah, Deliverer, to come who suffers. Of course it's confusing. But for us, we know the answers to who? Jesus. What time? Jesus' lifetime and the subsequent church age. We should read the Old Testament, particularly the prophets, eagerly. Eagerly, expecting that our hearts will often be stirred to praise when we there discover as a central theme the sufferings of our Savior on our behalf and then the glories of the resultant kingdom by which we are now members that He predicted. And so when it comes to the Old Testament, it is not the old way. It's not the God of wrath. It's not the, the thing that we no longer need. We don't unhitch it from the New Testament. We see it and we savor it because that was written by Jesus for us. For us. Because it says that it was revealed to them that they were serving not themselves, but you. You. The prophetic predictions were certainly not without relevance for the original hearers, but they would have comfort and hope to those that looked forward. But primarily, they were given to minister to you, that is, to New Covenant believers. It's not the first time that we've seen this in the New Testament. It's a recurring theme in Romans chapter 15, verse 4. For whatever was written in former days was written for our instruction that through endurance and through the encouragement of the Scriptures, we might have hope. 1 Corinthians 10, 10-11 Now these things happened to them as an example, but they were written down for our instruction, on whom the end of the ages has come. Luke chapter 24, 24-27, you have Jesus coming, and He says to them, O foolish ones, and slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Was it not necessary that the Christ should suffer these things and enter into his glory? And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. And the, the Old Testament was written for us. You don't unhitch it from the New Testament. We look at it 
and we love it. So many times in, in pastoral ministry and just with the body in general, people don't like reading the Old Testament. And I understand there are confusing things in there. But that doesn't mean abandon it. It takes time to work through and love and learn these things. And each time you read it, you see new things. Each time you're in there, you see and you savor more. You don't have to find the target audience. The target audience is you. It's not just rote legalism. It's God's grace and Christ's expectation of His sufferings for you. So yes, read the Old Testament. Love it. Learn it. Know its story. See the the tapestry that God has written throughout history. This idea of serving is here. I wanted to pull this out simply because of the season that we're in with deacons. The word serving, diakoneo, in this particular case, is the common word in the New Testament used for ministering to or serving someone. This idea of waiting on tables, of serving, of placing yourself below and caring for others, it reminds us that God's great prophets are simply servants of others. They're simply servants of others, as are all to whom He gives large responsibility. And suggesting, too, that we're greatly privileged to be the recipients of their ancient ministry. Jonah went in a whale for you. Jeremiah suffered, weeped for you. Imagine Isaiah, Jeremiah, Amos raised up for you so that you would have a book that reveals the Lord Jesus Christ, reveals His grace, reveals His deity, reveals His plan so that your faith could have soil on which it can grow so that you can be sure. Peter makes this point himself in his Pentecost sermon in Acts chapter 2. Everything that happened for the prophets was for you, Pharisees. Pay attention. Everything that happened in the Old Testament was for you, New Covenant believers. Pay attention. And so yes, I hate to burst your bubbles But God has revealed Himself in a very specific way. The written Word. You have to read. You have to read. I needed to hear this a while ago. You have to read. We have to read. If we are not reading the Word of God, we are not faithful followers of God. It is that black and white. We have to read. Because there's more for us to do. It's not just to understand, as we're going to talk about later, when we talk about our thinking. It's because we have something to do. Because when you look at this passage too, it tells us something interesting. It says, It was revealed to them that they were not serving themselves, but you, and the things that have now been announced to you through those who preached the good news. And I'm convinced that when Peter uses the word preach here, he's using it in its most general sense. That part of the work of salvation is that God in His Spirit has raised up people for us who somehow, some way, bring this message of salvation to us by preaching it to us. And I don't mean it from the pulpit, I mean telling, saying. And if you don't read and get it, you won't be able to say it. I mean, can you think of that person for you? 
Can you think of the names of the people that the Holy Spirit used in your life to bring the message of salvation to you? Do you remember their names? Do you have them? Maybe it was your parents. Maybe it was a friend. Maybe it was a coworker or a relative. Maybe somebody who was just previously unknown to you, a stranger. And what an amazing thing that is. Isn't it amazing the company of names that we could now recite? I mean, wouldn't it be beautiful if all at once right now we just said those names and you hear all these different names of the people that preach the gospel to you? It was not just some person with missionary zeal. That was God's Spirit completing the process, bringing the gospel of grace to you. And then God's Spirit was doing something else. God's Spirit was opening your heart to it because your heart was dead to the truth as we've seen the past two weeks. It was dead to the truth and it needed to have life breathed into it so the Holy Spirit is working in them and the Holy Spirit is working in you so that at a certain point you would believe. That is incredible. And now we know that there's a gallery of beings, the saints that have gone on before, and as we see now, the angels who are watching with amazement the transforming power of redemption. Watching those connections made, watching the Spirit work through the Word, watching someone begin to understand their deep need. Watching people grasp the glory of the suffering of Christ. Watching people grab a hold of God's grace, watching a heart be transformed and watching sanctification take place. The angels are peering over the wall of redemption, as it were, looking in at this amazing thing that's happening. The, the word peering, long to look, uh, is a little bit of an awkward It's a, the idea of, of observing someone without their knowing, right? Like peeping Tom style, right? The angels are long so bad to see what's going on. It's as if they are intently also looking for what is happening. They are excited by it. They're looking at this amazing thing that's happening. And we know the Bible says that the angel rejoice over one sinner that repents. Hear the applause. Hear the applause, the excitement. Hear the gasps and the sighs. The angels are being amazed at God's awesome work of redemption. Are you amazed? Are you amazed by this salvation that you have obtained, the outcome of your faith? Are you amazed by it? You see, the angels are not omniscient. The angels are not omnipresent. They don't know everything. They're not everywhere that is. They're on this time journey with us. And they are seeing and watching these things unfold with the perspective of God. And they are amazed by what's happening. And listen, you cannot understand the world. You cannot interpret the world. You cannot interpret your sufferings. You cannot interpret betrayal. You cannot interpret familial hurt. You can't interpret death of a loved one. You cannot interpret these pains unless you look at it through the lens of the cross of the Lord Jesus Christ. You see, the cross is an offense. The cross says we need to be redeemed. The cross says a payment is necessary. The cross says you don't have it all 
together. The cross says you are not at rest. The cross says you cannot make it happen. The cross says that you're not accepted. It's an offense to us. It tells us we need to be redeemed. We need to be redeemed. And there is no such thing as an accurate view of what is that does not have a Redeemer at the center of it. And we see this in our culture. This culture that has very quickly come against believers only now to start turning its tide in on its own self. It does not have a Redeemer at the center. There's no way to make sense of it. They're starting to discover how their philosophies actually don't work, how they turn against each other, how they actually tear down what they think is building up. There is no Redeemer at the center. It cannot stand. And Christian, we too often are so busy interpreting, so busy and full of life that we find out that we are barren. There's nothing there for us. There's no Redeemer at the center. There's nothing for us to stand on, to build on. But for a believer who interprets through the cross, who has a Redeemer at the center, who understands their need, there is solid foundation. A solid foundation that can make us excited. It can make us excited. Remember back to verse 8? Though you do not now see Him, you believe in Him and rejoice with joy that's inexpressible and filled with glory. Obtaining this outcome of your faith, this salvation. Yes, we can be excited. Because listen, it's going to be bumpy along the way. All right? There's an enemy who will get you to question the grace that you've received, who will want to call into question God's wisdom, His faithfulness, His love. There's going to be circumstances that don't make any sense to you. There's going to be moments when it doesn't seem like you're being loved. And listen, you need to have the stability and security of this view of life. That you have been, you are, and you will be Christ's if you're His child. And nothing can take that away from you. It is an amazing thing the angels long to look upon. And so we have to see and savor this revealed. He did the revelation Himself. And has risen the accepted sacrifice for our sins, Christ. If we're going to make it through suffering, we have to have that foundation. And Peter turns us to the Old Testament. The Scriptures. second thing I want you to see today as we lead on, Peter gives us a giant therefore. And as you know, I'm fond of saying, what's the therefore, therefore? Or in other words, so what? Right? <laughs> so what? What do we do? We walk obediently daily in fear of a holy God. Walk obediently daily in fear of a holy God. Oftentimes when I'm writing my sermons, I do, I work through the text first, of course, but then as I'm forming it into a sermon to teach, I don't start with points. There are a lot of people that outline and go to points and then fill in the points, and I should probably do that, but I'm not very good at that. 
Uh, I like to develop the whole argument and then see what the points are. Um, when I got done writing it, I'm like, all right, what are my points? Hmm, okay. And then I always ask myself, what am I trying to say, right? I don't want to get up here with nothing to say. Uh, this, this is what we talk about when we're evaluating our sermons. I feel like you had something to say today, preacher. Um, it's, it's the best compliment that we can give each other. Uh, I, got, I was standing there, and I'm like, what am I trying to say? And at the end of the day, for me, this sermon, this text, is, if you're familiar with our DNA material, and I know not all of you are, uh, is my, my G, my gospel application. That God is good, and so I don't have to look elsewhere. And I wanted that to be this sermon, the first half, God is good. The second part, you don't have to look elsewhere. And, and that, that so fulfills for me what I'm seeing here. So if you are in DNA, and you're familiar with your gospel, G, I'd encourage you to see how that applies here, because I think it does for each one of us. I think it does for each one of us, because we are seeing and savoring the truth of God. That's what the point of the four G's is, is to give you a right interpretation of who God is so you don't believe the lie that leads to sin. And then for us, the application of that, I think the second part applies it to you immensely because you're going to walk obediently. You're going to live in light of that truth of who God is. And for me, the goodness of God is what resonates the most. But as we look at this passage, look at how you, you see the glory of the gospel, the goodness of the gospel, the graciousness of the gospel, the greatness of the gospel in this passage. Verse 13, Therefore, what's the therefore? Therefore, prepare your minds for action, and being sober-minded, set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. As obedient children, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance. But as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct. Since it is written, you shall be holy, for I am holy. And if you call on him as father who judges impartially according to each one's deeds, conduct yourselves with fear throughout the time of your exile. This is a letter of comfort to suffering Christians. We've already talked about that. And he does do that, right? He does give some comfort. But, but listen, as he does that, as a wise pastor that Peter is, suffering people need more than, than comfort, right? Suffering people need more than comfort. And, and that's something that a lot of people don't recognize. When you see someone suffering, you just want to console them. And that's often not what they actually need. They need direction. They need marching orders. They need to be told what to do. And that seems counterintuitive, but one of the worst things for sufferers is inactivity because you, you tend to be all too focused on what you're going through. And what's interesting is as you're focused on what you're going through, you have a great ability to trouble your own trouble. And, and this happens all the time when people come and they are suffering. Everything is me. They did this to me. I feel this way. It happened to me. We are turned so inward, and we saw that particularly in our first sermon on this book uh, many weeks ago, um, two sermons ago, we turn inward. We see ourselves, and we need to turn outwards. We need to turn outwards first vertically to God, that we are not God, that He is, and we need to turn horizontally outward to other people when we are suffering, because we have a great ability to trouble our own trouble. And so Peter gives them marching orders. He tells them what to do. What's he say? He says, prepare your minds for action. Prepare your minds for action. This really gives this general 
sense of get ready, right? I mean, that's kind of what you get from here. But the problem is that it just absolutely obliterates the rich echoes of the Old Testament background verses that, that would tell its readers to be ready to see God work and listen, to respond to him with instant obedience. Instant obedience. It comes from the, the phrase that I'm sure if you've spent any time in church, you've heard this, gird up, gird up your loins, right? What's that mean? Well, they wear robes. You take the back part of your robe, you feed it between your legs, you pull it up, kind of like a wedgie, and you tuck it in, right? What do you have? Instant shorts, right? Old school BC shorts. And that's what would allow them to run, to lift heavy things. It's, it's the way to go. If you're going to wear your robes and you're trying to pick up big rocks, it doesn't, you, don't, you can't do it, right? So you pull it up, you tie it off like a weight belt, and you get after your deadlift. That's what you're trying to do here. And so it's that gird up. Well, he wants us to gird up our minds. Not just prepare, like, look out, get ready. No, prepare, think hard. Obedience is coming, and you need to do it instantly. It's time to act. And in this particular case, it's our minds. So it's obedience to think, instant obedience to think. And when he talks about thinking, he pairs it with something else. Be sober-minded. Get ready and be sober-minded. Sober-minded. The problem is that our minds wander, <laughs> wander into any other kind of mental intoxication or addiction that inhibits spiritual alertness or any laziness of mind which just lulls Christians into sin through carelessness or I think a better way, just into sin by default. We are so not careful that we just happen into it. And Peter uses this same word in chapter 4 and 5 to encourage spiritual alertness for prayer and for resisting the devil. And I'm sure, if, I'm not going to call her out because she's right here. Um, children have accidents all the time, right? Why did you do that? I, I don't know. You were not being careful is like the second highest thing that I say in my life right now. You're not being careful. And, and it really matters to me because me, particularly all of my life, have occupied a rather large footprint compared to most people. So I have to be extra careful. Otherwise, I turn children into jelly, right? As a, it doesn't take much. Um, I bump into people. If I bump into people, it's more like a boulder than other people bumping into people. And so I feel constricted in most of my life as I'm meandering around people. You've got to be careful. If I can be careful, you can be careful. You're tiny. You, you have a less vertical distance to walk into things. I don't get it. But be careful. It's that kind of just lost in yourself that we don't recognize what we're doing. And we're not sober-minded. We're intoxicated with whatever's going on. We either don't have the discipline to stay focused on what's going on, or we are so lost in our own selfishness that we just look for what we want to do. And it's that kind of just wandering that, that Peter is, is railing against. He says, get ready for action and pay attention. There's things to do. He knows how easily Christians can lose their spiritual concentration through, I, I like this phrase, mental intoxication with the things of this world. We, we today would probably want to consider the dangers that are presented by inherently good things. Good things like your career, possessions, recreation, reputation, friendships, scholarship, 
or authority. These, these are all good things to have, things of which we should be involved, things of which that we can use for the purposes of God, but they consume us. They consume us. And so Peter says, pay attention and get ready to roll and stay focused. Why? Set your hope fully. Set your hope fully. If you're suffering, get ready. If you're suffering, get out of your fog. I understand that that's hard in many cases, but it takes training and discipline. Because the, the goal is this. You have to set your hope fully. As your shepherd, I want to be able to do that for you. And I can't. I cannot set your hope on anything. As a father, I want to do that. As a husband, I want to do that. But I cannot set your hope on anything. I can present it for you. I can tell you how good it is. I can show you how, how tasty it is. I can try to get you excited about it, but I cannot set your hope on anything. Set your hope fully. Confident expectation. An expectation that is strong enough that you can act on the basis of it. Some of you are stuck in suffering because you've not set your hope. And you can backtrace that to see why. Maybe it's because you're wandering. Maybe it's because you're not ready. You've not girded your mind. And listen, circumstances fight us from everything, from our physical def- uh, issues and from sin that has wreaked havoc on the body to the choices that we've made. So the circumstances that are around us, there are all of these things, but the truth of the Scripture is the same. Prepare your mind for action. Be sober-minded and set your hope fully. We do this with discipline, and we find that we will arrive. Bit by bit, day by day, season by season, you will begin to set your hope fully on Christ. You see, this hope is not just some, some spectral thing that we say, it's coming. It's been defined. We know what the hope is. The hope is these great blessings of Christ when He returns. That should encourage downcast Christians. It also helps prompt us to a reordering of our priorities. Our priorities should be aligned with God's agenda. We see that in Matthew chapter 6. And it will inevitably lead to ethical changes in our life. We will choose differently. You see, it comes back to that interpretation. If our minds are ready for action and we are sober-minded, not thinking about anything else but what we're supposed to do, and we're ready to engage our hope, then when things come in, we interpret it to our hope that is coming. We interpret it. You see, Peter's readers know the great truths about their salvation, verses 1 through 12. And if we do that, we begin a habit of visualizing ourselves personally on a path of life leading without fail to unimaginable heavenly reward, verse 13. And so we will be mentally and emotionally ready to strive for a life of holiness before God. And so to paraphrase, first, gird up your minds and get ready to think on God's works and obey Him at once. Then, 
while continuing to be spiritually alert, begin to expect eagerly and confidently that you will receive from God great blessings when Christ returns. And he goes on to say, do not be conformed. More things to do. Don't let your character be molded by the desires of your ignorant days. It's a better way to say that probably. The fact that Peter could give such a command implies, listen, that he knew that such desires still remain. We know that. He talked with he talked with Paul. Paul knew that, Romans 7. These desires, these evil desires, these ignorant desires remain, and they have some power in the hearts of true Christians. But he tells us that very clearly the Holy Spirit's regenerating work has broken the ruling and dominating force of those desires. And so it's possible for Christians to have a significant measure of victory over them. We're getting ready to sing Singing in the Victory. We have victory. For those of you that have been in church for a while, remember David Crowder. We've already won. <laughs> We've already won. As Tim Keller would say, when it comes to our justification, we're not in the courtroom anymore. Jesus, our advocate and substitute, has pleaded the case to the judge. The judge has declared us not guilty on the basis of Jesus' righteousness for us. The prosecutor remains. Jesus is outside the courtroom answering the questions of the reporters. The judge is gone. He's already dropped the gavel. The accuser accuses and we keep defending. And Jesus is outside saying, why are you defending yourself? It's over. You're free. Hang on, Jesus. You didn't hear what he said. Why do we keep doing that? We have this great blessing Freedom. We've already won. And so we have significant victory over sin. The power of it is broken. Fight it. And Peter does something interesting, which seems very Peterish of him, um, if you've read the Gospels. He calls us obedient children, right? Do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance. But, um, I'm sorry. As obedient children, do not be conformed to the passion of your former ignorance. Why does he call us obedient children? Why does he switch that view? Why does he introduce this? Because he carries it through a good bit of this, this book. So Peter views readers, us, as children in God's family whose lives are characterized by obedience to their Heavenly Father. Why this change? We are adopted into, in the same way that we've been declared righteous already and we don't have to be in the courtroom we're already adopted. Uh, we watched Lego Batman last night because it's the best movie ever. Um, and, and Robin gets adopted <laughs> accidentally by, by Bruce Wayne, Batman, right? When he shows up, Batman figures out what's going on and goes, oh, we'll send him back. God doesn't, I'm not, I'm not going to say this very often, all right? God is better than Batman, all right? Uh, <laughs> Batman is, is a great thing to me, but he's not God. We don't worry about being sent back to the orphanage. Get him on the next jet back, I think is what he says, right? No, we're in. We're in. And like Batman, our God, our, God, our Father has lots of money, right? He's got all the resources. He's got all the blessings. He's got all the, all the costumes you could want to try on, right? He's got everything that we need. We can put on this new life because we're in. We're, we're adopted. It's done. It's sealed. It's over. We're in. 
We don't have to wonder anymore. And what freedom does that give to children who know daddy loves them? What does it do? You look at our culture and we have families that are torn apart every single day in the church. Outside of the church, we have children that wonder, when are they coming home? Some of you have experienced this. Why didn't he come home? Why did he leave us? Why did she as well? Why are they gone? The foundation that our families have of knowing that a father loves them unconditionally is a powerful thing. You have that. I don't know what your experience is, and I am blessed to have not had that kind of background, but I'm reminded of it often, particularly when I deal with some of the guys uh, in in my DNA, and some of you I, I know fully that have not had the same experience I have. But you have this. You're an adopted child of God. You're in. And so what happens then? We need to be characterized by obedience. By obedience to this Heavenly Father. And listen, instant obedience. So I want to take this to your home right now. Uh, Children, if you are in here, I'm sorry for what I'm about to say. Not really. You might not like me. Um, Parents, you, you must demand obedience from your children. You must demand obedience from your children. They must obey the first time without excuse, delay, or challenge. You high schooler folk that are looking at me not happy right now, you too. You too. You must obey your parents without challenge, delay, or excuse. And listen, the bar's high. That's a high bar. Unattainable even, right? Demand it. Demand it of your children. Why? Because the law demands it. The law demands it. How else will you show your children their need for Jesus? How else will you show your children their need for Jesus? The point is entirely that they can't. I hope that sounded like last week. That's the point, right? The point is that we can't. They can't. They cannot obey perfectly. Call them out on it. Demand obedience. In my household, I hear these answers, and I want to help interpret them for you. Why did you do that? I don't know. Because your heart is evil. You need a good heart. You need a new heart. Why didn't you obey my instructions? It's just so hard. Because you're selfish and you only want to do what you want. Your heart is evil. You need a good heart. You need a new heart. Why didn't you follow the rules? I just thought because you were prideful and didn't trust Daddy, your heart is evil. You need a good heart. You need a new heart. You see, God doesn't just keep threatening us. He doesn't shake his fist at us. He doesn't say it again, but louder. He doesn't just get annoyed. He doesn't get inconvenienced by us. He doesn't (laughs) ignore it and hope Mom takes care of it. All of these things that we tend to want to do in parenting, God does not respond to us that way. 
God sees our sin, all of it. All of it. And he is grieved by it. And then he gets off his duff and comes and does something about it. He comes out of heaven and he does something about it. His demand is total. So total that it took him totally. He came and he paid that price for our disobedience. Parents, take those opportunities as opportunities for grace. Discipline your children. Demand obedience. It leads to life. It leads to life. High schoolers, obey. It leads to life. One day you'll be an adult and you can screw it all up like the rest of us do. But, but at least life, obey. We have to demand obedience from our children because listen, parents, you also have to demand total obedience from yourself. We need to demand obedience from ourselves. Do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance, but as he who called you is holy, you also be holy and all your conduct, since it is written, you shall be holy, for I am holy. Listen, to say that God is holy means that he is separated from sin. And another important part that we often forget, he's devoted to seeking his own honor. You know, oftentimes when, when people think about God, they think of him as, as selfish, as wanting all this glory. He's earned it. He's the only holy being. He's the most holy being, the scriptures tell us. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. He's devoted to seeking his own honor because he's holy. He is the best being, and so he deserves all glory. He is completely separated from sin. So us, be holy yourselves in all your conduct is a pattern of life that transforms every day, every moment, every thought, every action. To be holy as God is holy includes a full and pervading holiness that reaches to every aspect of our personalities. It involves not only avoiding outward sin, but also, listen, maintaining an instinctive delight in God. That, that worship, that, that, he, that honor that he's devoted to, is we avoid sin and we give praise. So we have this inward delight that's instinctive in God and his holiness. And it should be an undercurrent of our heart and minds throughout the day. In counseling, sometimes people don't like what I say, um, which is fair. Um, that happens. Uh, my, my trump card, as it were, is uh, to say, so how are you pursuing holiness? Or how is that pursuing holiness? And uh, that helps us reset things a little bit, right? Because that's the goal. And a lot of times we forget the goal. It's not accommodation of of whatever's going on. It's not accommodation of uh, a physical, emotional, spiritual, mental, whatever these things are. We're not trying to accommodate them. We're trying to pursue holiness. <laughs> I'm not going to name who it was. Um, they can tell you if they want to. Uh, but I appreciated this um, compliment. Uh, <laughs> they uh, said, I'm, I'm so glad to be, I'm not trying to prop myself up here, and you'll see why in a second. I'm so glad that I have you to talk to uh, for counseling um, because I know when I go and talk to you, uh, you don't care what I think. 
you're just going to tell me truth, and you're not going to lose a, a lick of sleep over it overnight. And I'm like, yeah, thanks. <laughs> Pastor Greg might. He's an affirmation idol. Um, but I'm good. <laughs> now, I, I, I want to give truth. That's what's going on there. We want to say, hey, let's pursue holiness. That's the point. That's what we're after here. It should be what we're after at all times. It should be what crushes our conscience. You see, when I am in sin, when I am angry, when things are not going my way, and I recognize it, my heart is twisted up in the fact that I know I'm pursuing the wrong thing right now. And guys, I resonate with some of you. Sometimes I feel like I can't get out of it. I can't. I understand in different ways maybe than you what it means to not be able to get out of that. But what's twisting my heart and my conscience is knowing that I am in pursuit of the wrong thing right now. And it's calling me back to the cross. It's calling me back to holiness. John Calvin says, Here we learn what Christians ought to propose to themselves as an object throughout life. That is to resemble God in holiness and purity. But as all the thoughts and feelings of our flesh are in opposition to God, and the whole bent of our mind is enmity to him, Peter begins with the renunciation of the world. And certainly, whenever the scripture speaks of the renewal of God's image in us, it begins here that the old man with his lusts is to be destroyed. All the thoughts and feelings of our flesh are in opposition to God. And so how do we pursue holiness? Our mind is warped and is at enmity with God. So how do we pursue holiness? Peter tells us, do not be conformed to this world. Die to yourself. Put on Christ. And so when I'm locked up in that moment and I cannot get my heart out of that bind to pursue holiness again, I need to let it die. I'm fighting for life over there. I need to let it die. This exhortation to holiness is just one example of the way that the New Testament repeatedly assumes that the imitation of God's moral character is the ultimate basis for our ethics, for what is right and wrong. Listen, the final reason that some things are right and other things are wrong, and why there are moral absolutes in this universe, why infanticide is wrong, why abortion is wrong, is because there is a God, there is a Father, there is moral excellence, there is a God of the universe that delights in things that reflect His moral character and thus reflect His excellence. And He hates, hates, what is contrary to his character. And Christian, before you get wrapped up in those things which we would all affirm as being evil and wrong, he also hates our pride. He hates our arrogance. We have to kill sin, as John Owen would say, or it will be killing us. And so we are to imitate him and thereby glorify him. Peter reminds us here of this father-child theme in the context. He says, if you call on him as father, right? So as obedient children, be holy. Here he says, now, if you call on him as father, it's so appropriate. It's the nature of children to want to imitate their parents. There's no reason on this planet that my kids should know what turtles say. What do they say, Adeline? She's not paying attention. It's okay. Cowabunga, what do turtles eat? 
pizza. Why? Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles, duh. Get on with it. There's no reason they should know that. They know that because they like me. They want to imitate me. They're copies of me. It's a little freaky sometimes and bad in other cases. They want to imitate us. They know when they're wearing Batman. <laughs> they say, Daddy, look, and they show me their shirt. It's important to them. Why? Because they know that I love them. And so he says, if you call on him as father, Christians should delight in imitating God. God, look. Look. We want to be like our father because it's moral excellence, right? It's the right thing to do. But it's also inherently beautiful and desirable. To be like him is the best way to be. To be like God is the best way to be. Ephesians chapter 5, verse 1 says, Therefore be imitators of God as beloved children. Matthew 5, 48, You therefore must be perfect. This is Jesus speaking. You, not that the red is any more inspired than the black, but you therefore must be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. First John 2, 3-6, And by this we know that we have come to know Him if we keep His commandments. Whoever says, I know Him, but does not keep His commandments is a liar. And the truth is not in Him. But whoever keeps His word, in Him truly the love of God is perfected. By this we may know that we are in Him. Whoever says he abides in him ought to walk in the same way in which he walked. I love this picture from John Calvin. He says, There is then no part of our life which is not to be redolent or consumed with this good odor of holiness. I don't know if you wear smell good, but I have several different kinds of cologne. Um, one that I wear on the regular, but others that I like that I'm working on her getting to like. Uh, when I put them, those other ones on, though, I notice them like all day, hopefully not because it just smells bad, but it's different than normal. Like I'm wearing my normal one right now and I don't smell it. I'm used to it, right? But when I put on something else, it, it, different parts of the day, I'm like, oh, there it is. Oh, there it is. I, I smell it, right? This idea of holiness, this idea of this good odor of holiness should be redolent, should be consumed with, it should be hitting us throughout the day as we recognize that it's around us, that we are pursuing it, that we are in it. No part of our life should not be consumed with that. So not only is it the best way to be, but it's the only way to be. It's the only way to be. And you see, Peter gives sufferers something to do, but he also gives an appropriate warning. There's this tendency for us to spiral down in our trouble, to trouble ourselves with our own trouble. Maybe he gives a warning here, an apt warning for the context. He says that we have to fear God. This Father that we don't have to be afraid of losing. Yeah, you don't have to be afraid of losing. But you need to be afraid of God. Why? Let's look at this. You see, inevitably, God's holiness is tied to his wrath. I don't know if you know how that works, but let's, let me trace that out for you. Not to revere God as holy is not to revere God as God. In essence, it is to de-God Him, to displace Him with non-gods, with idols. 
And so God's holiness is automatically tied to his wrath. If you don't revere him as holy, you de-God him. He's worthy of all honor and he is the only God, thus wrath. I'll explain that again in just a moment with another example. But when we look at this idea of Father, God, that we fear, we need to recognize that membership in God's family, great privilege though it is, must not lead to the presumption that disobedience will pass unnoticed or undisciplined. Did you catch that? Demand obedience of your children. Don't let them live in such a way that they presume that they will not be disciplined and that their wrongs will go unnoticed. Adults, your wrongs are noticed and they will be disciplined. Look for those things. And so we can't assume that just because we're in God's family, smooth sailing, do what I want. God loves us enough to discipline us. Listen, Christians have no fear of final judgment. When it comes to standing before the cross or the throne, if you are in Christ's family, if you are adopted, if you are sealed by the blood of the Lamb with the Holy Spirit and you belong to Jesus Christ, you have no fear of judgment. You should have great fear of God's discipline. One commentator that I read says that the translation of the NIV is too comfortable for modern readers, and it does not allow readers uh, to appropriately grasp. It allows them to avoid the concept of fear of discipline. Fear is not an Old Testament concept alone, and if we relegate it as such to just the Old Testament, it is to the neglect of the many New Testament passages that tell us to fear God. One commentator said that it's to the impoverishment of our spiritual lives. Fear of God's discipline is a good and proper attitude, the sign of a New Testament church that is growing in maturity and experiencing God's blessing. That's why I had to spend about 25 minutes yesterday at membership class explaining church discipline because no one else does it. So it's a new, con- it's a, it's a new concept to many people. The New Testament church should exercise discipline. Fear of God's connected with rich growth and holiness in the New Testament. Fear of God is the beginning of wisdom, the psalmist tells us, or the Proverbs tells us. And so, listen, fear of God is to respect His wrath, right? His wrath comes from His just hatred of sin. God justly hates sin, right? Wrath is a result of that. His just hatred for sin is because of His holiness. Fear a holy God as Isaiah did. You see the connection between wrath and fear to holiness? We should fear a holy God just as Isaiah did. Woe is me, for I am a man of unclean lips among unclean people. That's why we work out our salvation with fear and trembling. Because it's a fear of displeasing our Father is the obverse side of loving Him, the opposite side of the coin. We want to love God and we don't want to displease Him. <coughs> I like this quote from a commentator. He says this, The fear here recommended is a holy self-suspicion and fear of offending God. I'll continue in a minute. 
You know how helpful it would be if we had a good, healthy dose of self-suspicion? We weren't so arrogant and prideful to think that we're doing it right every time. I'm using we a lot right now. A healthy dose of self-suspicion to go, hmm, this may not be holy. This may not be wise. This may not be the best way. A right fear of God checks us and says, if I do this and it's not right, there's wrath. There's discipline coming. And so fear recommended here by Peter is a holy self-suspicion and fear of offending God, which may not only consist with assured hope of salvation and with faith and love and spiritual joy, but it's inseparable from them. This fear of God is holy, like with a W, holy compatible with love, with faith, with hope of salvation, with spiritual joy. It's inseparable from them. This fear is not cowardice. It does not reduce, but elevates the mind because it drowns out all lower fears and it gives true fortitude and courage to encounter all dangers for the sake of a good conscience and obeying God. If you're an approval idol here today from our DNA, God is glorious. Read holy. It just doesn't start with a G. Glorious. And so we don't have to fear others. Why is that so helpful? If you recognize God as most glorious, most holy, you need not fear anyone but Him. You need not fear, worship, have reverent awe of, be concerned about anything other than Him. It doesn't lower the mind. It raises it. It grants freedom because we recognize that we are in good standing with the God of the universe. And so we live then with true fortitude, true courage, because it drowns out all other fears. And so how do you comfort sufferers? You call them to something greater, greater than themselves, greater than all their circumstances. You give them hope. You give them meaning. How do I make sense of this? How do I interpret this? What's my hermeneutic? How do I take this and understand this? I live in fear of a holy God that loves me and has me secured. You see, there was a man who rebuked Jesus when he talked of his suffering. He saw him talk of his death at the transfiguration, and he drew his sword to rescue Jesus from suffering. Yet in all of his bravado and self-assurance, when asked if he knew the man, he denied him three times. This man saw Jesus walking on the shore. And so he jumped out of his boat and he swam a hundred yards to meet him. Presumably standing there dripping with his mouth agape because there's no re- words that are recorded for him. He just And Jesus asks him after they eat, Do you love me more than these? And he said to him, Yes, Lord, you know that I love you. And he said to him, Feed my lambs. Jesus said to him a second time, Do you love me? And he answered, Yes, Lord, you know that I love you. Jesus said to him, Tend my sheep. And Jesus said to him a third time, Do you love me? And the man was grieved because he said to him the third time, Do you love me? And he answered, Lord, you know everything. You know that I love you. And Jesus said to him, feed my sheep. This man was Peter, clearly. 
And among all the things that he had seen and heard and traveling with Jesus, I have to believe that this moment was his moment. This moment, I think, if I'm him, and this, is, this story is one of my, my absolute favorites, this is how he interpreted life from this moment. Seeing Jesus suffer in a way that he wanted everything possible to do nothing with, to prevent. Seeing him raise, <laughs> rise from the grave. We go. seeing him rise from the grave seeing him ascend on high he has experienced and seen and followed him through all of these things but left him in his darkest moment and he's restored not once, three times fully this man has to be interpreting suffering and life through this lens How are you interpreting your suffering? How are you interpreting life? What is your hermeneutic? Are you grounded in this Christ that restores, this Christ that planned, this Christ that calls you to perfection and holiness, not just in the future, but now? This Christ that made a way? This Christ that brings you home? Feed my lambs, tend to my sheep, feed my sheep. Peter's fed us. Peter's fed us already. And so my question is, will you come and eat? Will you taste that the Lord is good? See and savor him. He's revealed himself. We can live confidently in the fear of God. Let's pray. Father God, we love you and we thank you so much for the victory that you've given us the victory that you've given us. You, you will call us to set our hope fully on the hope that is to come, these, these great things that are to come. And so, Father, as we get ready to sing about this victory in, in a new song where we talk about this restoration and redemption of all things and new again, Father, let us see and savor you. Let us read our Bibles and think deeply about you. You are good itself. It's not just that you are good, it's that you are goodness itself. And Father, we don't have to look elsewhere. Father, let us treasure you. Father, I, I, I hope inherent in this talk of holiness is the idea of repentance. Father, we, we pursue holiness by being repentant, by not being conformed, by laying down our lives by putting off the old man and putting on Christ. Father, I pray that as we sing these songs, we repent. And we work hard, ready for action at a moment's notice to set our hope fully on Your Son. Lord, we love You. We pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.